0: You're listening to the reversing climate change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: I was at an event not long ago and they did a a fireside chat format, but they had clearly prepared a lot for it. And it, it almost felt like more of a more stage managed than anything else because they presented it as though it was going to be candid, but it, it felt so programmed that it it was much worse than if they had just presented a thing as a speaker with a slideshow presentation that had clearly prepared very much in advance. So let's just not do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, we definitely <laughs> didn't do that because I don't have a script. So.
1: <laughs> yes, you're, you're listening right now to the chronically underprepared <laughs> Patrick Sow, <Sau, laughs> Nori's head Great. of product. Just kidding. <laughs> Pat, yeah, Patrick. Longtime fan of the show, breaking his heart with his intro, by publicly insulting him. Hi, Patrick.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ross. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, yeah.
1: No longer, though. Um, you're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast, and as you probably know, uh, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, and I'm the director of creative and marketing here, and we want to do a product update. I think it's been several years since we've done this. We've had a lot of things going on, and uh, we're overdue. Patrick, you've never even been on, so when, how long have you been here?
0: Uh, coming up on a year and a half. A
1: year and a half, so that's a long time to go without a product update. Oh, so someone's listening right now, maybe they don't work at a tech company, they don't really know what product means. It has a sort of, if you're inside the industry, if you work at a tech company, you know what it means, but maybe if you're outside, it's just one of these fancy pants tech, pat ourselves on the back kind of department names. What even does it mean to work in product?
0: That's a, I mean that's a great question. I think we're all we're all of us working in product are constantly trying to answer that question as well. Um, but it's, it's one of those jargony words that can mean as much as you want it to mean. Um, but I think in the most kind of pure sense, at least how I think about it, is anything that could potentially impact customer experience could be counted as product. Um, oh my and,
1: god! Is there anything outside of that though? And that's. That That's the problem,
0: angry. right? And marketing often says the same thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, everything is marketing and everything yeah. is product. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I think every product leader starting at a new company should ask themselves the question, what is product and why do I deserve to be here and what is my job and what value can I add? And I think in different companies, you know, the services are different. And so how product or software or whatever your scope is, fits in, can be a little bit different. And that's kind of part of the challenge is the job is different everywhere. Um, within Nori specifically, I think most of the job of product with regards to software today is to help us scale what we're doing and make us more efficient and be that supporting platform for whatever we need to do to reverse climate change. And so at the moment, it's things like you know importing data at scale and quantifying Uh, different farms and different fields based on crop event data. It's uh, creating a user experience for folks to keep track of what credits they have and what credits have been issued and enforcing certain rules around when retirement happens and whether trading can occur, um, making sure that growers get paid. And so all the kind of foundational stuff that has to happen for any of this to work um, is supported by software, and that's kind of what we're here to do.
1: Hmm. I've heard you describe it, um, the product discipline, as being toolmakers. Yeah, toolmakers for, for scaling. I've heard things similar to that. I, I'm wondering if maybe someone listening can't distinguish that from engineering. Um, are these synonyms? Is it different?
0: Well, I think that engineering is a way to build product. Um, and oftentimes, if, you're, if you have unique needs and you're building your own software, then you obviously need engineers in-house to do that um but you know with th- these days there's so many no code tools available that one could actually prototype and build something producty without any engineers involved and that's entirely fine um in some cases and so i think product is supposed to be this more encompassing word of like what are we what tools do we give ourselves to um help us do what we need to do and engineering is perhaps one way to uh, to go about getting our hands on those tools. Does that help?
1: <laughs> mm, so it seems like if I were in your shoes, I'd be looking ahead into generative AI and making sure there's a role for me to be the best possible AI shepherd I can be so that there's a future where engineering is um, made redundant a little bit by AI, or at least for certain functions, that there's still product leadership that needs to be done by an actual human, human namely yourself. Is that correct?
0: Or That's no? certainly a part of it, right? Like, you know, what I've been telling our team is that if we are supposed to be the team that is the most familiar with software and technology trends, um, just like how there are teams at NORI responsible for keeping track of policy developments or science within carbon, like, we are the ones who are supposed to keep pulse on software developments and innovation in that area. And so, generative AI is obviously a really big trend. And so, we're thinking a lot about how to recommend Nori to incorporate generative AI into how we work, whether that's just recommending different SaaS tools or doing lunch and learns, or maybe even one day building something. We don't know yet, but you know, as an example, <clears throat> I pulled the team the other day and kind of what it came down to was that we, we can agree that on average, each engineer is probably 20% more productive with the use of generative AI tools. And, wow, that's yeah, cool. and so and I think that's quite neat. You know, I don't know that generative AI will fully replace an engineering team or any team for that matter fully, but I think the job of the people who are on that team is about to change quite drastically. I mean, if you think about 20% productivity gain across our team of five engineers, that would mean that we've already pretty much created a headcount from our AI, right? Like, if you, if you add that together, we're doing the work of... Six people with five, and you know things, you know concepts like the mythical man month would say that you know more people doesn't equal like linearly more productivity. And so if you have fewer people doing the work of more people, that's actually even more more effective. Um, and so so one of the things I'm thinking about is well, can we replicate that kind of productivity game across the company? Um, and you know in a world where we're short on cash and trying to preserve runway and we don't want to hire too many people. Well, if you can get 20 people to do the work of 24, that's a fairly high ROI initiative potentially. Right.
1: You guys could also just switch to a four day work week.
0: Yeah. I'll run that by, that by Matt and see what he says. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty,
1: pretty exciting. Is the, Does the scaling of that not work linearly because the changeover costs of having additional headcount rather than less people doing that same amount of work? Because I feel like a lot of of energy is lost from having to teach someone, okay, here's where this is at. I need you to jump in here. I recently just started doing all the podcast stuff myself rather than outsourcing it to functional specialists because – the, the mere act of explaining it, I felt like wasted more time than we got benefit out of. Is that the same for a product? Yeah,
0: I mean, exactly. It, you know, humans are not, you know, the best collaborators as can be observed in nature. Like if you look at how ants or bees work, like that's not how we work. We're like creative people who ask questions and, you know, communicate and or fail to communicate at times. So there's a lot of friction that comes from more people working together. Um, and so, yeah, you're exactly right. It's like, at what point is that overhead still ROI positive? So, you know, you can't just infinitely staff a project and have it, you know, take much less time. Sometimes it doesn't work anymore at a certain point. So, um,
1: yeah, I've heard this said as the uh, nine women can't make a baby in one month.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a different type of constraint, but for sure, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's something about that where it just it doesn't work like maybe you would expect. And adding, I've often had an experience too where adding more money or more human power into a system hasn't led to a corresponding increase in outcome. Oftentimes, it's just been more management, more administration, and confusion. And it would have been simpler to take a little bit more time. That it would. Have, it looks like you can just buy your way or hire your way out of a problem. It turns out humans don't always work that way.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, even when we communicate with people you know, we have to distill it down and there's a certain amount of bandwidth that's available and there's all this context in your head that may or may not be effectively communicated with that. And so if you didn't have to hand that out to someone or if there was a way to transfer your consciousness into theirs or something weird like that, we'd probably be a lot more productive. Um, But for now, uh, I think just minimizing friction and sometimes that means keeping the team to a reasonable size is actually a great way to maximize ROI
1: that understated importance of tacit knowledge is is really key I've always heard this said if you had to teach someone how to ride a bicycle only using words because the amount of uh, motions your body must undertake to ride a bicycle successfully There's sort of countless of them little micro adjustments of balance how to to feel it how to know what to do. You really can't just explain it that knowledge lives in an unarticulated spot in your brain essentially. And even trying to explain some of the basics of just how to post produce a podcast and get it deployed successfully. it might seem like that's one step. It turns out that's 500 steps that it has taken years to build. And you don't realize that until you're trying to write the document for when you go on parental leave or something like that. And then realize, Oh God, (laughs) what am I saddling someone with?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of, uh, I recently read the inner game of tennis. I'm a tennis guy and kind of the same thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. you're better off trying to do emotion by watching someone than to read a book about it. Um,
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Just because you you need to experience it in a tactile way?
0: Yeah, I mean your body learns very differently than words. Words are like just a poor approximation of what your body is supposed to do, and so you're you're probably better off just having your body try to replicate what you want it to do rather than like force it to go through words. Um, it's like listening to music and trying to play it by ear versus uh, trying to play it off of sheet music, right? It's, it's always just an approximation, of what's written down. So that's,
1: that's fascinating because you, I mean, everything you just said about product has a sort of building orientation, but I also associate you with so much strategic work at Nori. Oftentimes, if, if you or I are noodling on an idea about what Nori is, how we should be positioned, what everyone else is doing, how we might be different, um, often we're chatting about that in the yeah. hall on a pretty regular basis. Does that fit into product work or are you expecting someone else to just tell you what to build and, and to show up or are you expected to bring that to the table?
0: I think product leadership certainly requires strategy, right, because our our goal is to kind of bridge the gap between a vision and what teams can execute against. And in some cases, depending on the org you belong to, like product maybe even owns the vision. But I mean, if Nori's vision is kind of large enough, uh, you know, to not have any team own it, right? (laughs) To reverse climate change, that's a pretty big thing to have to do. And so there are many different ways that one might go about doing that. And so I think it would be too passive for product in its definition to be limited to tool building I think we have to also think about all right what is the problem we're trying to solve and what are some ways that we can solve it and given that you know we are also you know the subject matter expert of of software which is one of the highest leverage tools available to humanity today like we ought to try to be keeping an eye out for how one might apply software to solve some of the problems that we face in on our mission right and so I think any highly functioning product organization isn't just telling the rest of the business, our job is to build the tools you tell us what to build. It should actually be trying to solve the problem together and understand the problem together with the rest of the org.
1: Hmm. How do you come out of a problem like climate change from a product orientation, which given how expansive product is, does that question even make sense?
0: I think it totally makes sense, and I think that's that's the difficulty, right? I think if it was not hard, we'd be done already, and we wouldn't be here. Um, and so I don't, I don't true. know that anybody has the right answer to the question of how do you solve climate change. I think a bunch of us are trying, right, and doing our best. And despite our best efforts, you still see many nasty news articles, and carbon pre- credits still don't have exactly the best reputation. And so I think we got a lot of work to do. But I mean, I think that there are a lot of different ways to think about like coming coming at, to come at this problem right i mean one of the ways that i think about a lot is like you know you read a lot and talk to a lot of people and the more that you read and talk to people the more data points you have and at first those data points may not form a pattern but at some point they start to oftentimes and even if a data point is outside of your industry it could be inspiration at some point in the future I think another way to go about it is like um, I read the not the recent Elon Musk, but but the one from years ago, um, before.
1: Oh, I think I've read that one too. Yeah, it's from like probably like five
0: years old. Yeah, yeah, like before all the recent crazy stuff. And and in that book, um, there was a pretty strong emphasis on like first principles thinking. And they were the example they used was how Elon went and looked at like rockets, and they they were costing NASA like orders of magnitude more than if you were to just take the what's goes into a rocket and add it up and the question was why and so he that's one of the ways that he then like went about building rockets at SpaceX and so I think first principles is a pretty important thing is like if you really boil down the problem you're trying to solve to the core and the essence and then just ignore their noise in industry for a second I think that sometimes is a good way to start to understand some of the fundamental things that we're really trying to do versus some of the things that we're trying to do just because of, I don't know, like we care how other people think about us or we're just trying to go with mainstream or something like that. Um,
1: That's a, I associate first principles thinking as being both a really powerful tool, but also can be a dangerous one too. I associate, this is gonna be peak Ross. I hope you're ready. (laughs) Bring it on. Um, I associate it with Edmund Burke's criticism of the French Revolution, essentially, of trying to redesign society based upon a few principles. And it doesn't take that many extra steps before you end up at the guillotine. And you're trying to, um, I don't know, uproot all of the messiness of life, all of the nuance, and just get to a couple aspects of a uh, galité, fraternité, <laughs> and... Um, And if that's all you have, you lose sort of the messiness of life that we operate within. Nori also, Nori has always been a very first principles-oriented company. And it's one of the reasons why I would cringe to listen to earlier episodes of the show, especially that first year or two, because I doubt I knew hardly anything about carbon markets. Certainly not to be talking about them in public with a degree of familiarity or um, that I know so much better I feel like I know a lot better now, but I would also approach it with a lot more care now. Back when I was younger, I had a maybe a more of a first principles approach, but that potentially led me into thinking that people who didn't see it the same way were blind to the obvious problems here. Um, but then they would say like, oh, they're the mature conservative ones who have seen, been through all these cycles. They've been here since the CDM in Kyoto, and they know that this messiness that exists exists for a reason, and how dare I come in here trying to cut it all down and start from scratch but maybe now have I just become an incumbent basically is what I'm saying (laughs) have I now become that annoying person who says first principles that's a great idea in theory but once you're trying to build something actually the details and the nuance matters a lot good luck making anything from that Patrick (laughs) but there's a lot of ways you can go
0: well I mean I think you're right like the nuance does matter but and and you know for the record it's not like you just do first principles and that is truth right I think it's in the face of mm-hmm. a bunch of ambiguity in to your point, it's like, how do you even go about solving climate change? You know, we need all the tools we we have available to to even start to reason about some of these things. And that's just one of them. You, I think you can do a similar exercise with different premises and maybe the triangulation of all of those things becomes truth at some point. But I mean, like as an example of how The recent products we've been working on, you know, apply to some of that first principles thinking was, you know, if we, you know, overly simplify things and just just think about for a second, like, why does anybody care about carbon credits? Um, I think the most cynical would say, well, companies only care about it because at some point they're going to be forced to care about it. Right. Like if we assume no company did this out of the goodness of their heart and just wanted to be compliant and wanted to do the financially best thing for themselves, then. People care about carbon removal credits. I mean, corporates care about carbon removal credits to the extent that it helps them get out of net zero obligations, right? Um, and so, with that as the premise, like the first principle is that a carbon credit is only valuable um, or as valuable as its net zero ness, <laughs> if that's even a word, right? And and so, I think that as that as a starting point is pretty interesting because. Nearly no carbon removal credits today in the market are net zero eligible, right? Either it's a, you know, a, a a type of credit that is perhaps nature-based and therefore deemed not permanent enough by a lot of experts because it doesn't cycle the earth the same way as fossil fuels, or it's one of those permanent credits that isn't available, right? I think what did CDR and FYI say? It's like three percent of credits that have been sold have actually been delivered or something like that. Yeah. And so I think that's a that's a pretty interesting premise, uh, you know, I- even ignoring all the nuance. It's like, well, if we agree that the primary utility of a carbon credit is uh, its net zero-ness, then how is it that there are, are like hundreds of millions of dollars changing hands in this market when 97 percent of the supply doesn't actually meet its primary utility? So how, so the, I think then the an interesting question is how does the market deserve to exist with hundreds of millions of dollars changing hands, getting all this news when most of what's changing hands doesn't actually even satisfy what those credits were out to do, right? Like, like how many credits are going to be sold this year that can actually be claimed against net zero or carbon neutrality pledges this year? And I think that's just very interesting. I think that's a, it's a very low percentage, <laughs> like near zero, right? Um,
1: it's dominated by biochar. I think they're basically the only methodology that uh, is able to deliver right now. Yeah. At least at the, like, greater than 100-year um, durability.
0: Yeah, and then so then if we applied that to Nori, it's like, at least back when we were doing this thinking, that was, that was what, like, early 2023? Nearly a year ago now, actually, um, before we had launched the Net Zero Ton Then it was like a bit of an interesting conundrum for Nori. It's like, well, if none of Nori's products satisfy the core value of a carbon credit, then what do we do, right? (laughs) So, what are we here to do? So, that also begs some interesting questions, I think, internally to ask of like, okay, well, is it enough to work only in soil or not? And do we need to think about selling soil differently if we don't want to imply that it's net zero eligible? and what else can you do with soil as a type of carbon credit, to help with that net zero ness? Right.
1: I wish there was a way to do this so much faster too. What's that company that doesn't even make clothes until it gets enough purchases, and it does it like nearly instantaneously? God, you're gonna say it. I know the name I of have, the company. Do you I You know do what I'm not. talking about? It's like they don't—they don't actually have inventory. They just—they sell—they sell designs, and if they get bought, they oh, make I them. Oh, I've heard of this. And and it gets retired very quickly too. So they, they basically create fashion um, just instantly off of what the trends are and innovate very, very quickly and retire things very quickly. Unfortunately, it creates a lot of fast fashion waste and those criticisms apply. But anything that you do at a company like Nori, because there's a contractual basis for it, there's many laws and regulations that one must um, be in compliance with, there's marketing and messaging around it, there's customer research, and then just the mechanics of delivering this thing, working with suppliers, Anything that you see any company do basically has taken at least several months to, to get shipped. Um, and who knows, like, is net zero even going to be the thing that people are going to care about a year from now? We got kind of lucky, and yes, turns out they do still care about it. But for how long? And how can you make it so that this uh, innovation system goes much faster? So whenever, whatever supplants net zero... Um, how do we stay ahead of that, essentially?
0: Yeah, but, but regardless of what you call it, right, like the truth is that fossil fuel emissions get emitted and stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. And so, like, going back to first principles again, then it must be the case that if we ever to define, like, what is a negative emission, uh, it should follow a similar trajectory that's, like, nearly the exact opposite of one positive emission, right? Otherwise the math won't work. And so, so if like the definition of a carbon removal credit that is net zero legible is that representation of a negative one in carbon accounting standards, regardless of whether that's called net zero or something else, like that concept must exist, right? Otherwise we're not gonna, we're not gonna ever solve it. And so, so mm-hmm. then the question becomes, how do you then launch a product that is the negative one? like, you know, accepting that this is a bit of a moving target, but, like, I think scientists actually have a fairly somewhat, like, pretty consistent view, I would say, right? What a negative one emission should look like out in nature. Like, what should it do to the Earth? Um, How we actually get there, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of more the MRV world. Um,
1: Yeah, there's some open questions, I think, about, how long it must remain sequestered for it to count as a true negative one is it a hundred years Is a thousand years is it ten thousand years um how much reversal risk are we okay baking in to a credit and calling it permanent or, or durable there's a difference between those things um so but yeah broadly i think there's more consensus probably than there's been in the past
0: yeah and i think that's i think we that's what we talked about why internally The idea of blending was interesting, right? It's that I think even though it is still a moving target and blending might be a key word that I shouldn't use publicly without explaining, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's a moving target, but I think it's now to find enough where perhaps one could reason about um, different types of carbon credits and how one might go about stacking or building a portfolio out of them to make it approximately a negative emission. Um, according to you know, the idea that a positive emission, if you assume that it's out in the world forever until you take it back in, then the negative emission ought to be one emission put away forever.
1: Maybe we should introduce blending, reintroduce it. We've done shows on it previously. I'll link in the show notes to Radic and I talking about it. Um, Patrick, why don't you talk about what blending is and what the NZT is, and, and maybe we'll get into some of these <laughs>
0: ideas. I'll try. <laughs> so... Let's see. Blending first came about as an idea, uh, actually from one of the brainstorms that you you ran, Ross.
1: Um, this is what Nori does. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so I think I think at the really... time we had recently launched an API so that people can come and use our supply basically to to build on top of that and do something with it. And so we were, there was this brainstorm that you ran where the company was invited to throw out crazy ideas of how one might go about using that. And one of the ideas that was pitched was uh, kind of funnily called noridactyl because the idea was that you could um, accelerate the climate impact of these future ex ante credits, DAC being the obvious one to pick on. Um, so that you know, by first pairing it with one of our solar credits. And uh and it's a nice mix because uh, our sole credits are ex post meaning that you're paying for carbon that's already been removed and um, so it's immediate impact, but it's not as durable as some of these other uh, methodologies and so um, it's kind of good at exactly the f- thing that these future credits are not good at you know where a a future you know twenty twenty seven vintage year DAC credit might be highly durable and hopefully permanent, um, but it's not available for you know, five, ten years. And so, you know, a, a natural criticism of that would be, well, we spend money on that now to develop the tech, but we're all kind of just waiting and hoping it comes to fruition. And so, but what if you were to build a, a product that allowed anybody who was buying these future credits to also buy a soil credit from Nori, which um, Essentially, quote unquote, upgrades that future DAC credit to be a present day kind of impactful credit. And we call it Nori Dactyl because we put Nori and then DAC and then made it sound like a dinosaur. And that was fun. <laughs> um, yeah. Was it fun? For, for whom was it uh, fun? For me, it was. Yeah, you? definitely. Oh, okay. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, and so you know that was like for a while actually one of the uh, sales pitches we pit we experimented with you know was that c- could one go out and l- work down the list of the CDR to FYI buyers and look at their vintage year and try to say hey why don't you spend a little bit more money and instead of having a twenty twenty seven vintage year having a twenty twenty three vintage year um, turns out that wasn't exactly the right hypothesis but that's fine it's still a good idea and around this time we. Um, We got very lucky and got invited to the beta program with Stripe for their Climate Orders product, which recently launched as well. Um, And so that was good luck because it enabled us to use our supply and build it on top of the Stripe Frontier supply, which tends to be the ex-ante future durable stuff. Um, And so what we could do is a simple integration and test the idea of blending as previously talked about on the podcast which is that we could stack that would be the technical word of the industry so stack two credits together first by retiring a soil credit which is again immediate and exposed and then using software to then enforce that there's an overlap between the expiration of that initial soil credit and the delivery year of that future durable credit thereby creating a hybrid credit that is present day net zero eligible Um, and that was an interesting way for nori to test not only blending as an idea but whether immediacy and present day eligibility would be a useful you know value add to the market Um, and that was great because it it allowed us to try this without building our own methodology and finding our own suppliers and all of that so accelerate our roadmap i think quite significantly you agree do you agree with that
1: Uh, I definitely do. Uh, Onboarding new supply, especially a new a new genre of supplies, a huge task and requires public comment and a lot of stakeholder engagement and making sure that you're doing things correctly in a way that's publicly articulable and respectable. Oh, but Patrick, what you said is so complicated, too. Can you explain it to me like I'm sitting in the kid's seat <laughs> in a shopping cart at the grocery store? If only there was some way to explain this that would make sense to me, a small child.
0: Explain what? The, the idea of blending?
1: Oh, I was just trying to set you up for the for
0: the grocery. <laughs> oh, you want me ideas? to talk about that? Come on, man. Oh, man. Well, I mean, if we come back to that first principles idea, right, which is like, you know sometimes when we're solution seeking and forming hypotheses it's useful to take ourselves outside of our industry because then a lot of the nuance and details that can be distracting at times starts to fall away. I think I spent like a week thinking about this which is like if we call ourselves a marketplace and there's all these people selling carbon credits and they call themselves a marketplace and they're project developers like if we just take all those words away and use a different industry how would our thinking on this change? And so the being a foodie like i went down the path of food right and so it's like what is the primary utility of a meal right it's to it's to make us full and enjoy like have give us maybe give us an enjoyable experience or whatever and so and so there's a lot of like the question of when you buy a carbon credit are you looking for what are you looking for and if the f- primary value out of a carbon credit is it's net zero ness then then let's say that you know, the primary utility of a carbon credit is to fulfill net zero. And so therefore net zero-ness in credit is roughly the same as like a meal fulfilling your your hunger. And so then if you keep following that line of thought, it's like, well, if somebody sells you a carbon credit, call it the Nori regenerative ton, which is a soil credit, therefore is not necessarily like net zero appropriate, how would that fall into that line of thinking? Right, and so what are what are like ingredients that go into a meal um, that don't necessarily represent the entire meal, and so it's like groceries, right? And and then today, and furthermore, in in the climate kind of carbon world, there are all these consultants that people hire and to help them come up with like a carbon emissions management solution as a corporate. Like, how do you go about managing that? And so you can kind of think about like you know if if carbon credits are mostly not net zero eligible today, and there's like all this labor that goes into making them somewhat net zero eligible, or um, at least on the path toward net zero eligibility, then kind of the, the parallel is like, okay, a chef, you know, is responsible for cooking a meal out of groceries, and so therefore like a net zero eligible carbon credit would be a meal, and you know, Nori's soil regenerative time credit might be one of those groceries. And, and so, one might go about coming up with recipes that tell us, okay, given that you have a certain set of re- groceries, how could you turn those groceries into a meal? And I think that was an interesting exercise because it made me think that perhaps we're thinking about it's all wrong, like perhaps that the future of the car market is not one where everybody's going around buying groceries but that um, everybody will be looking for meals aka net zero eligible credits in the future and today that's just really hard to do and so people spend a lot of money outsourcing and purchasing recipes and hiring people to execute on those recipes and that's why there's a whole industry of people working on car- like carbon consulting services but then for nori maybe that's somewhere some opportunity we could think about, which is, can we create a product that is the meal? And Noray's value-add is, we go out and curate the groceries, find different suppliers Carbon to partner with, we have our own in-house science team, and they come up with the recipes and help all of our customers turn that into meals. And so that became the premise of a lot of funny strategy discussions, I think. You always giggle when I talk about this, I don't know why, but... Um, I think you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it. I just like
1: setting you up though cuz once you have an idea like that, that metaphor is just too strong and then, you know, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If all you've got is this grocery thing and meal thing that you're always bringing up. <laughs> no, I think it's a, I think it's a good way to understand it too. And what are people trying to achieve when um buying carbon credits? Because one of Nori's faults is it's both the thing that we're really good at and also something that has occasionally been difficult to deal with is that we're we're often farther ahead of our customers in some ways and trying to innovate and trying to keep abreast of what has maybe held carbon markets back and trying to innovate past that. And uh, it would be really nice if we knew exactly what customer goals were and then could tailor portfolios to them. I mean, people are doing that too. If you wanted to hire... Many of the intermediaries out there that are more like consultants, they will help you do that. They will build a portfolio for you. But there's also there or there should be a segment of the market that maybe doesn't have enough money to be hiring out consultants, but they do have specific climate goals. And it's not just we want to buy offsets. That's like saying, where do you want to eat? I don't know. I want to eat food. Yeah. You're like, okay, but some specificity here. What is your goal to qualify for net zero? Are you trying to be officially net zero? Do you want to engage customers and give them a chance to participate too? What do they care about? Do they care about supporting farmers? Um, do they care that you're supporting cutting edge, weird uh, pre-MRV carbon removal? What do, What are you trying to do here? I don't even know that many customers are even ready to have that conversation. Some of the things that I've heard back from um, non-bleeding edge, non-carbon removal industry gatherings is that the discourse is like far behind that. Mm -hmm. Not, not to be, that that sounds kind of bad or pejorative or insulting maybe, but it's, I don't know that everyone is ready to have that conversation, which is why many of the conversations just focus on, I'd like a hundred offset credits, please.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that is part of the nuance that gets lost with that net zero-ness as a premise, right? It's like, if you talk to ESG professionals, like their job is, environment like societal governance poverty it's like all of those things and carbon
1: what, like all of all of civilizations
0: like, yeah problems. i mean like every un sdg goal can be the job of one of those people and so carbon is like one of those things and and so kind of the, the, do, the downside of like being overly fixated on net zero-ness as a goal is that it's just out of touch with reality it's like Even the leaders in this space have net zero pledges for in 2040, 2050. They have reduction goals in 2030. And so, you know, when you apply that to the timescale of a startup, it's like, well, we can't just like hang out for another six years before people really start caring about net zero-ness. And you're right. Like a lot of these people who make decisions about ESG would say, you know, supporting healthy food and good land stewardship is more important to us than our net zero goal. And we have customers who say that. And so we do have to be careful when we talk about a meal. Like maybe they're, maybe they just want dessert. Maybe they don't want a full meal. Maybe they just want a snack. I don't know. I don't know how far to take this analogy. (laughs) But, but it is like off, awfully presumptuous, right, as a premise to then say all of Norway's product strategy should be based on net zeroness, And it clearly shouldn't be. It's just one reference point and one thought exercise. And to the extent that we, come up with useful tidbits or ideas along that line. Great, but we got to be careful too to not overly index on it.
1: Oh, and even if we did find the customers that care about supporting food, the second question is, well, how much should I buy? And because everyone's trained in terms of tons, the I'm gonna take a page from your book here, the North Star metric of tons has not served that goal very <laughs> well, but they also don't know how to think, they don't have a replacement. It's not like they say, oh, well, everyone else is, you know, supporting a thousand acres a year, switching to regenerative practices. We want to go for 10,000 acres because no one thinks in terms of acres. It's hard to even know how much you should do. And you don't want to go to your CFO and say, I'd like an indeterminate amount of money for a nebulous goal. That's going to get laughed out of the office right away. Right. (laughs) But like, we don't have a better metric to to give these people. Um, Educating your customers too. It's like, Teaching someone to play a board game. Isn't that the worst feeling of all time? <laughs> you just watch their eyes glaze over. They don't want to learn. <laughs> they'd, rather just, they'd rather just stop and quit and just have a beer and talk. But no, you're going to learn how to play this. You're going to learn how to play Axis and Allies tonight. Damn it. It's going to take us four hours and you're going to love it. I, I
0: wonder about uh, that. I was talking to one of our customers, um, One OnePack. Sean is the sustainability head's name. I don't know if you've talked to him, Ross. Um, so, they work on circular economy and so they run like recycling programs for companies. Like, and their North Star metric is carbon, yes, but uh, how much landfill, how much landfill did they avoid, right? And so, in like weight. Um, so, you know, I feel like that's actually a really good example. It's like the agreed upon behavior that we want is less trash in landfill and um and the way they're going about it is making sure things that we throw away become you know part of the raw materials for new things to get made and so like you know like if you were to like shoehorn carbon accounting into that impact assessment you would you would like i don't know take the all the trash that was not in landfill and try to calculate like I don't know how much it emits as it like decomposes or how much was emitted from from it being manufactured in the first place or something weird like that. Like you could certainly take that and back it into a carbon accounting appropriate metric and it'll be like six levels away from like, you know, where like oh, the fact that it's just trash not being trash and, and fine to the extent that we need like at the UN level Reconcile that in a single place so that we can report impact Kind of in aggregate that's fine, but like It would be a shame if folks like them Stopped doing their work just because the world didn't think their effect on carbon emissions was sufficient, right? like avoided landfill is in itself a Good thing and I think that regenerative agriculture is a similar thing because there are so many other benefits that like perhaps carbon is just like 20% of the impact of regen ag Um, Like we met somebody who does agroforestry and that's how they felt about it is like this is honestly just the most obvious way of monetizing agroforestry adoption. Like all scientists would agree that it's such a small part of the benefit of doing it. Um, I just think that we overly fixate on the weight of the carbon specifically (laughs) as a proxy for impact in our industry.
1: I don't know that I've encountered that many people who disagree, except especially in the early days of Nori, too. We used to always talk about how one of the main problems with carbon markets is that we should be obsessively focused on getting PPM back, back to pre-industrial levels. But people were getting distracted with co-benefits, and what does this do for all of these other causes simultaneously? And really, we should just be hammering on the main variable that we're isolating for is PPM. Anything else is bonus, but don't get distracted by by this. But th- this is another case where Nori's living in the future, too, because people don't want this PPM uh, credit against the Earth's carbon budget. They want a story to tell, and that barcode story is pretty bad as far as stories go. I made um, a 0. 0.000, how many zeros, 0.1, uh negative ppm it's not that good of a story yeah you know clean cook stoves pretty yeah. good story you know
0: man yeah cook stoves is an interesting one too it's like it's like it, it resulted in behavior change and people cooked more and stuff but is that a bad thing like I, I get that it's maybe the carbon impact wasn't what people wanted but like is that a good reason to not have anybody have access to cleaner cook stoves
1: <laughs> like i mean I mean, I had just assumed in the telling of that, that that was uh, a potentially a fine thing to care about. But yeah, I think the story of that is complicated. A lot of these projects are too, the, the, oh, we give away nets for malaria. Oh, and then the fishermen use them. And now they're microplastics in the ocean. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's, you know, analysis paralysis. It's like all these solutions. If you get deep enough into the weeds, you can make the argument that it's bad. It's like, like, I gave you my EV rant, right? The, Patrick's should I rant EV about EV rant. on this yeah, podcast? You,
1: I can duplicate for you, mostly because I have to run in just a minute, but you love your EV beca- so much that you want to drive it more, and therefore you curved yourself by loving your EV. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I mean, if I cause more traffic, then should that take away from, like, the carbon emissions that I've helped reduce by not driving an ICE car? I don't know. That's... And is it possible that EVs that drive point. themselves and end up actually net emitting more carbon? I don't know. Somebody should run I the mean, numbers on that. I
1: don't know. <laughs> the, yeah. The LCA people are a very special type of nerd, and I'm sure they'd be happy to oblige you on this, <laughs> but those sorts of questions are never-ending. Well, thanks, Patrick, for being here. We... We'll just do it again. We need to do more regular product updates. I think people who, who work in product but maybe haven't broken into climate tech would love to hear more about your experience. And there's just there's a lot to talk about from a product point of view, slash, your personal point of view. I'm not sure how much of that is fair to attribute to product versus you <laughs> in particular. But <laughs> thanks, thanks for yeah, hanging thanks out. Thanks for me. having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.